This morning, we are continuing in a series in the book of Acts, which is the story of the birth and expansion of Jesus' church around the world. And last week, uh, Easter Sunday, I hope you had a great Easter, Jimmy looked at Acts chapter 13, which is the story of two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. And they get this wonderful opportunity in Acts chapter 13 to declare what we call the gospel, which is just a word meaning good news, which further is not just good news, but is an expansive good news of what Jesus has done for us individually in his death and resurrection, but so much more so as well, as the implications of that death and resurrection defeat sin and death and sickness and illness and begin to usher in the coming and present kingdom of God. It's a wonderful message, and so many people in this Jewish synagogue that they are able to speak in respond in faith, becoming followers of Jesus. At the end of that sermon, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't, it's wonderful, Jimmy talked to us about three postures or um, ways of moving into um, a mindset, a, a pattern, if you will, of speaking to individuals about that same good news. The implication, of course, being If this really is good news, if Jesus' death and resurrection not just matter this much to us individually, but have such lasting and expansive implications, then we are just drawn out of joy, out of need, out of excitement to telling other people about him. And so Jimmy gave us these three postures or patterns that we can move into as we share the gospel with people. The first one was empathy, this idea that we are to um, care about the fact that other people have been affected, not just us, but everyone is affected by sin and death and the fall. And so it isn't just that we are sinners, but we also have been sinned against and we feel the effects of pain and sorrow and illness and sickness and death, especially right now. And this leads us into a time of curiosity, um, that we're able to engage with people about how uniquely those things are affecting them. And so doing, we get to share testimony with them. And, you know, commonly this is just considered our own story of faith, but it's so much more than that, that we would be able to speak, being informed by a relationship, we'd be able to speak particularly to people in their place of need in their time of need. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14, the next chapter. Paul and Barnabas are again going to have a time where they get to share about Jesus with people. But it is not going to go as planned. It's going to be messy. And so this morning what I'd like to do is to offer a second set of three postures as well, speaking not against last week's sermon by any means, but saying, if we take what we learned last week and we continue to move forward into the complexities of this week, the messiness of Paul and Barnabas here in Acts chapter 14, then I think we can gain a steadfastness, an encouragement, and a hope as we move into the world sharing the good news with real people. So, 
Let's listen as Tom reads the word of God today. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. Now, at Lystra, there is a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, you who are working in the hearts and lives of everyone in this world, would you draw us to a renewed love of you and a renewed love for our neighbor? Would you do it through your word this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. So, Paul and Barnabas move from a time of celebration and excited sharing of the gospel to a complicated opportunity. A little bit of context here. We didn't read verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 14. But in Acts chapter 14, 1 through 7, Paul and Barnabas go to this city called Iconium. And it is, and all of these towns and cities are effectively in modern-day Turkey, Iconium, they continue the pattern that we saw in Acts chapter 13, where they walk into a synagogue. They are travelers. They're greeted warmly, hopefully like individuals at InTown are greeted. And because of the idea that they are, are Jewish men coming from Jerusalem, they're honored as guests, and they're given an opportunity to share 
Now, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 13, that went very, very well. But in Acts chapter 14, verse 1 through 7, it does not go well at all, and they are run out of town. And so being run out of town, they go on to the next town, Lystra. And Lystra is an interesting place. It's not as Jewish as many of the other towns that we've seen so far. So instead of going along the pattern that we've seen so far, where they go to the synagogue, hopefully are given an opportunity to speak and then get to share the gospel, they rather are, are walking around the city and just encountering people, building relationship. And they notice a man, we see in verse 8, sitting who couldn't use his feet. He's crippled. And the text says he's crippled from birth. Now, this is a big deal because in a town the size of Lystra, which is roughly three to 10,000 people at the most, people would have known him as one of the town crippled, the town needy. And so Paul, getting a supernatural insight from the Holy Spirit, and keeping with some of the things the other apostles have done throughout the book of Acts, Paul sees this man and he heals him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, stand upright on your feet. And the man, of course, springs up. And you can imagine the celebration, the shock, the awe that would have taken place. And even though the text doesn't say this outright, you can imagine Paul doing what all the other apostles have done with, uh, in this pattern of miracle healing they start talking and celebrating and sharing the good news of God with those around them, explaining how the healing took place and why it is happening. Now, it's helpful to pause here for just a moment and remember that miracles often are God's exclamation points. So Paul does this miracle here, which are also called signs and wonders sometimes in the book of Acts, specifically to draw attention to the power of the message of the gospel. If Jesus can do this, what else can Jesus do? If Jesus can do this, what are those far-reaching implications of the gospel? And so you'd hope Paul gets to now stand up and talk about Jesus with the crowds. But as we said earlier, things get messy. And so this leads us to the first of our three postures that we can continue to move into complexity. Because in our world today, I don't know about you, but I often still, despite wanting to not, I think in binaries, either or, yes or no, white or black, right or wrong, we can think about binaries with respect to evangelism. And we can, you know, evaluate whether or not Paul and Barnabas were effective at any point in their ministry. Did these people receive the word of God? Did Paul succeed? Was he good at what he did? Well, in one respect, sure. We find right after this that Paul, after uh, having this, this miracle happen, this man springs upright, the crowds gather. And not only do the crowds gather, but they begin to sing worship and praise because of divine action. So, of course, it was successful, right? We don't have a group of people, you know, sitting around like maybe we would today being like, that guy wasn't really crippled. 
That wasn't really a miracle. They start x-raying him or testing him for medical science to validate the miracle or not. They don't do that. They accept this restoration having taken place. But they do so ascribing the miracle to the wrong God or set of gods. The crowds speak and saying that Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods, have come down and have come down in likeness of men and have done this power. Paul and Barnabas, uh, we'll find in a minute how they react when they realize this, but it's important to slow down for a second and look at the text and see there in verse 11 that these crowds begin to whisper and then to worship in Lyconian. Now, sometimes, I don't know about you, I forget and think that everyone in Scripture just has a Star Trek universal translator. And so everything that's written on the page can be understood by everybody. But that's not the case. You can imagine Paul and Barnabas celebrating, doing their thing, talking about Jesus. And while this is all happening, murmurs and cries and rejoicing and singing is happening. And they're like, yeah, this is exciting because they have no idea what these people are saying. Until suddenly they look over and they find out that somebody has gone outside the city gates, gone to the town temple, found the town priest, got him to bring animals and garlands and fruit and celebratory sacrifices that they're about to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And suddenly this thing has taken a massive left turn. I don't know about you, but but sometimes while while I have never had somebody... um, I've never had somebody walk um, because of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I've also never had anybody openly try to sacrifice things to me. But I have been in situations where, as I was talking to somebody about Jesus, I thought what I was saying was getting across. And they were nodding their head and actually receiving. They were not antagonistic whatsoever. And yet, what I realized was that the words I was using and what they were hearing were two very, very different things. You see, sometimes we can make assumptions about the people in our lives' worldviews, their stereotypes, their presuppositions about life, the world, divinity, sin, beauty, everything. We can make these assumptions And in so doing, our empathy and our curiosity that Jimmy called us to last week, we don't go deep enough. We think we're coming across, and so we we maintain only a shallow curiosity. I've been doing some reading um, in this time of quarantine, and one of the authors I've been learning a lot from is Arlie Hothschild. Arlie is um, an award-winning sociologist at UC Berkeley. She's actually 80 years old now. has been writing for many, many, many years. And in 2016, she uh, was a finalist for the National Book Award for a book entitled Strangers in Their Own Land. Hothschild, of course, being uh, at UC Berkeley, um, a a bastion of left-leaning politics, didn't understand 
um, in the wake of the 2016 elections how people um, who were not of the same political persuasion as she could vote the way they did. And um, this is, of course, not making any statements pro or con of any of these individuals, but she was interested. So she journeyed to Louisiana, and she sat for five months and lived with individuals who did not at all hold to the same political persuasion she did. She had uh, debate and heard debate. She had conversation. She tried to convince people to her side and vice versa. And what she realized on the back end of this experience was a concept that she calls someone's deep story. What she realized was this, was not that she was educated and the people she was speaking to were not. There were sometimes some educational differences, but not always. It wasn't that she was logical and other people were not, or that she was rational or other people were not. She could have educated conversation about politics with most anybody she would meet. And in many respects, they, because of their own experiences, were more educated in certain factors than she was. And yet she realized that underneath the rational and the logical, there was a deeper cultural persuasion driven often by our emotion, by our sense of nostalgia, by our sense of upbringing, by the honor we give to those people who come before us. Essentially, she realized the roots of ourselves, of our sense of identity and what we believe in and who we give our allegiance to in any area, those roots go incredibly deep. And she was challenged as to how she could find empathy with individuals who didn't just differ in politics, but in fact differed in their understandings of beauty, of honor, of personal value. She was challenged to realize that in some respects there are greater differences sometimes between people than she realized. This challenges me because a key tenet of our faith is that we're all made in the image of God. And on one hand, being made in the image of God, we do experience many, many things in the same way. And yet, it is important for us not to assume too much. Paul and Barnabas likely did not assume walking into Lystra that their message would be received and put through a lens of history that they were not necessarily aware of, or at least weren't thinking, had such great power. You see, and this is actually recorded in Ovid's Metamorphosis, for those of you who love classics, there was actually a myth about Zeus and Hermes coming down, taking on the body of men, and visiting a town in this area. As a result, they went from place to place and they um, looked for shelter and were refused at every turn. And in so doing, they finally find this young, uh, this older couple who invites them in. And so they take the older couple up on a hill and they then send a flood to wipe the town out. They save this couple because of their hospitality. So the, the town itself is actually charged 
with this specific value of hospitality towards the divine, awareness towards the divine, but interpreting the divine in a certain way. So many of the people you and I hang out with, and indeed ourselves as well, we are all charged with various assumptions and definitions, life experiences, and cultural values. So as we are are leaning into Jimmy's words of empathy and of curiosity, we need to give ourselves the time. We need to give ourselves the relational safety and space and create such spaces to go deep into the complexities of our neighbor's lives. The second thing we see is humility with Paul and Barnabas. So their reaction to essentially being uh, made gods in the eyes of these people is a very common Jewish one in the face of blasphemy or in the face of great tragedy, which this kind of has elements of both. They rip their clothes apart, fall on their knees perhaps, and they cry out. This response uh, is immediate. Once they finally figure out what's going on, maybe once they see the bull or the parade coming towards them, they fall and they cry out, they tear their clothes, and they say, we see there in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And then Paul goes on to speak a word of good news to the crowd. One of the reasons this passage calls, I think, us to humility is a recognition of what Paul doesn't do. I think you and I, especially in an age of platform, where having power and influence is so important, especially in a digital age where we have individuals who are social influencers and everyone seems to have to be their own brand to sell themselves, to get a job, to further what they care about. What Paul doesn't do is to take on the power and influence being given in the city. I mean, in all honesty, if Paul really wants the biggest audience, the correct thing for him to do, if he just wants to speak to the most people and have their most attention, is not to do what he does. I mean, he needs to wait until maybe the priest gets up, maybe he gets to meet the priest, maybe he's given a key to the city, and then finally he can say, whoa, 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 guys, there's been a little bit of a misunderstanding, but since I have you all here, but he doesn't do that. He shuts this parade, this party, this celebration down, and actually in so doing seeds some of the, the power, the relational capital that he's been given away. I think sometimes it can be tempting for us to believe that somehow the good news of the gospel needs our own addition of power or strategy to somehow get it across. Now, of course, this is not uh, calling anything against godly wisdom. And there are people who study, they're called missiologists, who study how to get the gospel across. I praise God for these people. There's nothing wrong with us thinking as a church how we can most effectively share Jesus with people. There's nothing wrong with that. And at the same time, we will always have a temptation when we are in relationship with other people 
to try to add to the gospel, to do what we can from a worldly perspective of tearing down any hypothetical barrier that might exist between them and the gospel. Again, some of those things can be God-led. There's nothing wrong with us being kind. There's nothing wrong with studying maybe questions that individuals would have. Peter, later in his own letters to the church, call us to always be ready with an answer, but to do so with meekness and grace towards the person who's asking. And yet, it's so tempting for us to become other people. What we see here is that Paul does not compromise the message of the gospel to make it more palatable to the crowd. He, in fact, says very specifically, you should turn from these vain or worthless things to a living God. He repeats an argument that's made throughout Scripture in places like Isaiah 40 and Romans 1, where where the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40 and 41 points out the the weird, sad irony of an individual who might chop down a tree, split the log in two, and spend half of it carving an idol, and then literally use the other half of the same material to eat a meal and cook that meal with. But Paul does so not out of a place of power. It's, It's important to realize that we already all are in places of influence and power. And the Lord might, because of his great plan for you or for me, lead us into different places that seem maybe to have more or greater influence. But let's be honest. Right now, you could name the five most influential people in the world, and they do not influence my children the way the cartoon character writers on television influence my children right now. They don't influence my children the way I get an opportunity to influence my children. They, in fact, influence each other more than the President of the United States influences them. At the end of the day, we all are in places of opportunity to speak with gladness the gospel into others' lives We don't have to compromise. We don't have to be something we're not to do so. And this leads us into a final point, the idea of sensitivity. Sensitivity. What Paul doesn't do here, understanding the precarious position he's in, the complexity of what he's in, and now having rejected the power that they have given him, torn his clothes and cried out, please stop. What he doesn't do is take a position of anger. This is one of the reasons why even the ripping of the clothes is often a a response to blasphemy in Scripture. What Paul doesn't do is to take it a step further and start talking down to them. Instead, he actually does exactly the opposite. And he paints a picture that makes it possible that he may have actually been aware of the myth, or maybe somebody explained it to him. Because he explains to the people of Lystra that there is a God, and that God is in heaven, and that God is powerful. But in fact, the blessings of this God on the world 
do not connect with whether the world has hospitably received him or not. These listeners, even though they do not know Paul's God and your God and my God, God still allowed those nations to survive. He gave them good rains, joy, fruitful seasons, gladness. You think about that for a second. Even in the midst of the evil and corruption of sin, God himself is the source of all of the true joy in every single civilization that hates God. God is still the source of sustenance for them. He cares for them. And so Paul, in just as, as Jimmy last week called us to testimony, he makes an intentional choice to reach out with kindness to these individuals. It's so easy for us, especially in an age of identity politics, where everyone takes such an absolute position towards something. It's so easy for us to take a posture not of sensitivity, but of anger, as if somehow we need to protect the honor of God in the face of individuals who would believe something different. Now, yes, there is a place for great mourning, There is a place for great sadness. And we, even in the midst of our worship and even in the midst of being the people of God, there's a place for us to rip our clothes symbolically, if you will, and to be sad about the deaths of individuals in this world, about the corruption of innocence in this world, about our own brokenness and sin and the sin that swirls around us. And yet it's so easy for us to be angry and cynical at people for that same thing. To take a high horse of of holier than thou to look down, to think, oh, that's so absurd. How could you be pro this or pro that? How could you love this person or that? How could you act in this way or find delight in this? When in reality... Just like Jimmy said, with curiosity, what if we asked instead, not how could you, but tell me about that. Help me learn. Sometimes you'll still be drawn to great tears. Sometimes you'll have a conversation with a friend and you'll go home and you will weep before Jesus because of how lost and confused they are. But the gospel calls us to great sensitivity in not directing out our pain and our sadness back at that person, but rather crying out to the Lord on their behalf and loving them. At the end of all of this, it's good to remember what comes next. Paul does all these things, he's humble. He acknowledges complexity. He's curious. He's empathic. He shares a testimony. He does it in a sensitive manner. And individuals from the previous cities we've talked about come, rile up the crowds. They stone him and think he's dead. In many respects, one might evaluate Paul's delivery here negatively. Yet I want to leave us with a word of hope. 
One, Paul doesn't die. Paul and Barnabas survive this time. They go back into the city. How how crazy is that? They go back to the place where people have just almost killed them. And then the next day they move on and they speak to another town and then they keep going. And the text tells us that they get to return to these places and strengthen the souls of the disciples we see in verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith. This means that despite what just happened, despite the mess, a church gets planted here. Even more hope. Just for one second, turn one page over in your Bible. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe, the next town, and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer and his father was a Greek. For all of the mess and sadness and hardship and mourning that we find in this instance, not the type of instance that you'd come back and share with your small group and saying, man, I got to share Jesus with people and people responded, but saying, dang it, I, I tried to talk to my son or my daughter again about Jesus and I just feel like it falls flat and I don't know what to do. Lystra is that type of experience and yet from that, we find the man who literally becomes Paul's heir Paul's next in command, Timothy, one of the great fathers of our faith, out of the mess of such an experience. Friends, you and I are friends with real people. We are real people and we're friends with real people. These real people are complex and some of them the Lord has been working in for a long time and they are ready to receive the good news and become followers of Jesus. But many of them are not. And it has nothing to do with how good you are or bad you are at evangelism. It has nothing to do with answers you might have or not. It has nothing to do with your uh, sense of perfection in front of them or not. It has to do with God using a real person, you, in real people's lives, in real time. For some, that will be a week or a minute. For some, that will be a lifetime. But our God is faithful. Your evangelism might be messy, but it is good. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you again for this day, and I pray even now for the people who may have come to mind as individuals have been listening to this word from Acts chapter 14. I pray that um, you would encourage those of us who have longtime friends those of us who have children or parents, and it seems like it is a brick wall that we have burst our head against so many times. Lord God, give us hope. Give us renewed energy. Give us joy and life in knowing your time. 
Encourage us, we pray this morning in your name, knowing the incredible miracle you've done in our lives. Amen.